All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Compliance Guy. It is Tuesday, and that means it is time for our hashtag Terry Tuesday with my great friend, Terry Fletcher, out in California. How are you, Terry? Good morning. I am good. Good Monday morning. Did you like that little crescendo that I did as I was? I did. It was very impressive. Yes. Felt like Ed McMahon back on the Johnny Carson show introducing <laughs> I, mean, I should have said and here's terry yeah come on right. down yeah <laughs> come on down so all right so today um you know this episode we want to expand upon something that we talked about a couple weeks ago at least i think it was a couple weeks ago. it was yeah yeah where we were talking about Self-disclosure protocol with the OIG versus voluntary refunds with Medicare. And I think Terry and I, when we when we hit that topic, you know, we tried to stay, you know, kind of, you know, straightforward, keep it to a lay explanation so that we didn't get so wrapped up in legal terms and regulatory terms and this and that. And, you know, later, uh, you know, uh, that week or the next week, I went ahead and did something a little bit more in depth, but it wasn't really geared towards the medical practice executive. It was really geared towards the regulatory compliance individuals and uh, legal counsel who are being asked to help practices make a determination as to whether they self-disclose or they do a voluntary refund to an insurance company and when to use each of them. Because I get a lot of phone calls and a lot of emails during the course of the week from attorneys who are like, hey, listen, um, I was referred to you by an attorney friend of mine. You know, I don't really do self-disclosure protocols, and I'm trying to figure out whether or not they should make one or whether or not I should be recommending, you know, a voluntary refund. And, you know, can you kind of give me a lay of the land and see what, you know, your thoughts are and kind of how you approach these things with, you know, clients and attorneys that you're working with? And. I thought, you know, the fact that I've received so many of those inquiries that maybe it was worth my time going ahead and doing a little more expansive explanation on the two. But today, what we are talking about is to refund or not to refund. That is the question. That See, is now the I'm question. throwing a little Shakespeare into it. There you are. Yeah, we, you know, Sean and I were talking offline, and yeah. and we also, I mean, Sean and I are at this twenty four seven. We we chat on the weekends as well. And one of the things that came up for us is the fact that I think there's a gray area between administrative staff and practices and physicians, where they're obviously you don't want to let go of your money, and so you're basically saying, is this really a refundable situation, or can I just let them know, identify the problem, educate, and then do a corrective action plan. And so Sean and I are here today to really discuss that and hopefully give you some areas that aren't so gray, where they're they're a little bit more uh, black and white, where, okay, this is when you refund, this is when you don't have to, but there are some gray areas that you're going to have to make a judgment call. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's, what, probably five or six areas, Terry, that I want to ask you questions about. I think we'll do this sort of as an interview if you're cool with that. Yeah. And I'll I'll ask you some questions about some specific scenarios. And then you can kind of walk the audience through whether you would refund or you would hang on to that money with the understanding that if it truly is that gray of an area, you probably need to reach out to counsel legal counsel for guidance on that, right? Correct. Okay. Yep. All right. So let's let's start with the very first one. Offshoring. Offshoring. Okay. Yeah. So offshoring, so, I mean, let's again, explain what that is. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's... Yeah. So uh, again, offshoring, there, there's a couple of different explanations for, <laughs> excuse me, offshoring. This is not the offshoring example where you are sending your uh, documentation uh, to a group that may be in India or may be in Pakistan or in the Caribbean or in Europe or wherever they are, and you're asking them to abstract information from your medical records and then to assign CPT, PICPIC codes, modifiers, diagnosis codes. Offshoring that we're referring to here 
is the provision of services for which an entity is seeking remunerations of U.S. dollars for services that were not performed in the United States. So, Terry, you want to go ahead and take this one? Yes. So um, the one thing with the offshoring, and this is where, okay, so everybody's heard the phrase, um, you know, too much information is this and ignorance is bliss. Not in healthcare. You can't anymore say that, well, I didn't know. It is your responsibility to question everything. If you're going to submit something for payment, then it's your responsibility to do your due diligence and find out, you know, what third party uh, vendors and, and people that you're using, whether it's a billing service, whether it's a care management service, third party, that's where this has really become a, a highlighted issue. And if they are using staff members to provide services uh, from India, Pakistan, et cetera. And Sean's right. We're not talking about if you outsource your uh, billing or, or something like that, even though I don't recommend it. But, you know, everybody does some some value in that because of, of how inexpensive it is. But what the Social Security Act says, and I, we hate throwing numbers at you, but if you don't have the chapter verse, you, you can't reference it back. And it's Social Security Act 1862-42-USC-1395-YAP-4 say that three times fast. And it really talks about, it says, notwithstanding any other provision of this title, no payment may be made under Part A or Part B for any expenses incurred for items or services, and it says, which are not provided within the United States. So are there some um, exceptions to the rule? There are. And it's really, some of these exceptions, you just sit there and roll your eyes. The one is, let's say that you're you're out of country and you're traveling. And you need an ambulance to get to the, the local, wherever you are, let's say you're in Paris, to get to the local hospital. They'll pay for your, your ambulance to the hospital, and that's it. You're after that, you're, you're on your own. Um, if you had an emergent event, so let's say uh, you had an unfortunate heart attack, and they'll pay for your admission and for a doctor to consult, and that's it. That's why it's recommended you get travel insurance that includes medical but what we're really referring to are the elective things that you're billing for, like care management, chronic care management, things like that, um, where, or even let's say you're a patient that lives, um, let's say in New York, and on a telehealth, you found a physician who is, let's say, in um, Belize or something. That's not going to be that's not going to be paid and you can't expect it to be paid. And if you don't disclose that that was out of country and what we call offshore, then um, you're going to be in violation and that would have to be refunded. Yeah. And, you know, CCM and TCM, these these have become huge audit targets. Yes, And, you know, I mean, obviously we're we're, we're not talking about the documentation required for these. What we're talking about are potential risks of rendering services from an offshore perspective and not disclosing that you've received remuneration for them. Exactly. And, and be careful because, and Sean and I have seen this, some of these CCM companies out there, I don't, I don't want to say they lie to you. They lie to you. <laughs> they're basically saying that everybody's in the U.S. and they're outsourcing as well. So you need to get something in writing saying that that is not the case and make sure you're protected because if you find out after the fact, it's a very expensive mistake. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I've seen, I had a case last year um, where a company providing CCM, they actually had a location in North Carolina, but it was just this little tiny, like 400 square foot um, room in a building. It was like basically the size of a janitor's closet. And it was just a solid door and it had on there the name of the company, you know, CCM Services, whatever it was. And... There was no posted hours. There was no anything available for, you know, an investigator or an inspector to take, you know, to be able to know when the hours of operation were. Um, and of course, upon further evaluation, it became quite clear that this organization had set up a U.S. based address but had none of their actual services being rendered in the U.S. They were all being rendered 
out of India. Oh, and oh, that is a, yeah, that's a huge problem. Well, and you just and, steamrolls from there because then you don't, you get into tax implications and, oh, it's just. Well, there's all kinds of problems, right? But, yeah. you know, the company itself, you know, the, the U.S. government doesn't have the reach to prosecute um, an organization over in India. And right. if you think India is going to prosecute their own nationals because they potentially violated a civil law or, a, you know, a civil statute or a criminal law here in, you know, the U.S. that was a nonviolent, non-drug related, you know, law. Guess again, they're not going to extradite them. They're not going to send them here. And civil prosecutions right now in India are taking between 10 and 15 years to actually happen. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, to Terry's point, you've got to do your diligence. You know, it's not just enough to ask them, are you a U.S. based company? Because anyone can set up a U.S. based company. The question that you have to ask is, are the services that you're providing rendered in the United States by U.S. based physicians or care professionals? Right. And have that in writing. And have that in writing right. because that's what is going to be your quote unquote, get out of jail free card if you need one. So that's, that's, that's a great one, Terry. So, I, I so that's, that's number really one. Good. That would be a refund situation. If you find that they're out, out of Absolutely. Yeah. I agree with you. All right. What about services that are B status? What we refer to as bundled services under the correct coding initiative. I think that's what you, you know, yes. we're, we're trying to focus on. Yeah. Yes. So before I say that, I do want to thank a sponsor, Keck Medicine of USC. This is this section is brought to you today. 500 internationally renowned doctors at a leading academic medical center, keeping you healthy, on track and doing the things you love. The Keck Effect. We appreciate them today for helping to sponsor this segment. So B status. I know. So B status is bundled. And I actually had a um, how do I want to put it? a thoughtful discussion with a physician on this where we were disagreeing. So this is a perfect example. So for those of you that are cardiology coders, let's say out there, there's something out there that is in the NCCI, so the National Correct Coding Initiative, um, the, the manual, and it's chapter 11, section one, cardiovascular services, number 14. I love giving chapter verse because that that enables you to say, I am the subject matter expert on this. So make sure you always have your chapter verse when bringing this information to your physician, something to that effect. But for example, let's say that there was a stent in the left anterior descending artery, 92928. And let's say that your physician also stented a diagonal side branch, which would be a 92929. Well, not for Medicare. Medicare, and I'll quote right in that NCCI manual chapter, it says Medicare does not pay separately for PCI in a branch of a major coronary artery as this payment is included in the payment for the PCI code for the corresponding major coronary artery. So bundled codes, it doesn't mean that it's not covered. It means that you're already being paid for it. So keep that in mind. You're already being paid for it. So if you try to, to report it extra or separately, you're double dipping. So, so let me is, ask you a question. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to step on what you were saying. So for so just for somebody like myself, because you know, yes, I, I I have all these coder designations, but you know, the the fact is, you know, I mean, I I get my continuing education and everything, but I'm not I'm not as versed in certain aspects of this like you are. I mean, you're 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 like Yoda for me <laughs> when it comes to these things, <laughs> without right? the ears, yeah, <laughs> without the ears and the green tint to your skin. Mm -hmm. Um, but so with this, so I think what you're talking about for me is if a patient has a stent in the left circumflex artery, and then there's a branch that comes off of that left circumflex and an additional stent is put into that. Is that what's bundled into the major coronary artery? Am I, am yes. I, am so I hearing only, that correctly? You, yes. You can only build one code. You can't build the additional if there's a branch because they're saying it's anticipated that your physician in a major coronary artery might also treat the branches of that major coronary mm. artery. Now, this is Medicare. So remember, when we use that word bundle, this is Medicare. You might have a private payer that has a different rules. That's why CPT has the um, the codes. 
But what it says on the uh, Medicare physician's fee schedule is you have status indicators, and this is 30.2.2. And it basically says, so for example, A is an active code, says if it's covered, it'll be paid under the fee schedule. Um, B says payment for services for covered services are always bundled into payment for other services not specified. There will be no RVU or payment amounts for these codes and no separate payment is ever made. That's pretty clear. It says yeah. when these services are covered, payment for them is, is subsumed by the payment for the services to which they are incident. So they're basically saying that when we put it in a B status, you've already been paid. So let's say that you had a practice because when these when these um, changes came out in 2011, where they were allowed to, where, where basically AMA said, oh, we have branches now instead of just add-on codes. Well, then everybody was like, oh, look what we can code for. And I said, no, it's in a B status for Medicare. And they're like, well, we're going to send it anyway and see what sticks to the wall. I hate that spaghetti thought, you know, way of coding. You know, and I had to, I, I, I just had to, I just had to look up a word. What's that? You know that? I had to look up a word. Subsumed. Subsumed. <laughs> I was like, as, as you said that, I was like, subsumed. And I yep. was thinking like a spelling bee, subsumed. Could you give that to me in a sentence? <laughs> Is it a noun, a pronoun, an adjective, a verb? <laughs> you know, and I was looking at and, and, and I was like thinking to myself, you know, because these are the bizarre things that run through my head, Terry, for some reason. And yeah. I was like, subsumed. What the heck does it? And I was like, well, I guess that means it must be included. Well, yeah, I was actually right. Include or absorb something into absorbed. something else. Yeah, I've never heard the word hmm. either. Whenever you read the, the Medicare law, you're just like, what the heck are they doing? Somebody has entirely too much time in their hands. But bringing it back to, is this a black or white refund yeah. or is this, you know, a a position, a, a possible? No, this is a refund. If you went and billed for a stent in the LAD, let's say, and a stent in the Diagonal 1, or like what Sean said, a stent in the Circumflex, and then also a stent in the OM1, Obtuse Marginal, um, or in the right coronary, and then also a stent in, let's say, the PDA, posterior you know, descending. Those are all branches of those major coronary arteries. And sometimes, even when things are bundled, the, it you can bypass an edit inappropriately. We know that. We have a modifier that does it. And just because you get paid doesn't make it correct. You have to make sure you have that written and tattooed on your forehead. So if you found you got paid for that and you were auditing your services, you'd have to send a refund for Medicare that it's bundled. You've already been paid for it, even though you may not agree, but you've already been paid for it uh, in the major procedures. So anything that's a B status means do not report. It doesn't mean that you know, just, and it doesn't mean that you're not getting paid. It means you've already been repaid, already been paid. Do not report. Otherwise it's duplicate and it would definitely get you in some trouble. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, you learn something new every single day. I mean, you know, a lot of what you said makes sense from a common sense standpoint, right? Just from working with payers for decades now. Right. But, you know, I, 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 I love I love the fact that you're able to speak specifically to the chapter and specific verse for where these things are actually found. And I think this helps people um, that are listening to the program, similar to like you, where you had a healthy uh, interaction with a physician yeah. who, for whatever reason, <laughs> I don't know, I've I've kind of learned over the last year or so, like, I don't. I don't debate with Terry on coding and doing. <laughs> you could debate me, but I'll win. I just, no, I'm just kidding. No. It's trivial well, pursuit yeah, for I me. Mean, <laughs> I, I lose enough battles in my house with my wife. I don't need to start losing battles with other ladies. So. Oh, it's so funny. Well, it's funny because um, there's one, everybody always picks my husband to play Trivial Pursuit because he just seems to know everything about nothing. About he's got this, he's got so much information in his head about random nonsense. And I'm like, I'm yeah, Tom's Tom's my partner here. But this is the same thing for me. I believe in in healthcare regulation. I can quote almost anything. And to me, it, it it's kind of funny because 
if you don't have chapter verse, whether it be the CPT book or an association workbook that is your lobbying effort, and I'm talking coding, of course, or if you're dealing with compliance and Medicare, and you have to know this, when somebody asks you a question, it can't be, and you and I like live or die by this guideline, if it's not published guidance, it's someone's opinion, not law. And so unless we have chapter verse, it's really nice that it says, well, you know what? Terry and Sean said you can't do this. Who cares? Terry and Sean are saying you better not do this because claims transmittal R1005CP under the B status says this. <laughs> so, right. you know, it's it's chapter verse. Yep. Well, two things. One, my wife says my head is full of useless crap and I should be on everybody's trivial pursuit team. Um, <laughs> she always says that. It's actually pretty funny. Um, number two is, and, and keep this in mind, even though you may get a local coverage determination or you may get a, 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 you know, a policy, you know, out of Medicare, if it is not something that has undergone a formal rulemaking process, it's what they call sub-regulatory guidance, which means it's, it can't be used in a charging situation, right? For an indictment or to force somebody into a settlement agreement, right? Because it's 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 a what recommendation. I, what I use it for, because I know you and I have a little bit of a different <clears throat> opinion on that. So when Sean yeah. gets to the level of indictments and legal, you know, take backs and things like that, he is 100% correct. LCD, they're going to say, well, what's the NCD? What's the national policy, that's you know, right. that's published? Not what's the guidance from the local carrier. But I use LCDs if I have a physician that says, well, in this circumstance, this is why we did this. And so I look for a local coverage decision to say, okay, maybe in this patient population, we've got a specific situation. And it is warranted. There's a reason for LCDs in different places. Um, but it means that it's guidance. It means you can do it. But then again, if it's ever questioned, you have to be able to back up why you use that as, as your support. No, absolutely. A hundred percent. So this takes me to the third one. And, you know, when, so durable medical equipment, right? DME is such a high priority target for the government. Why is okay? that, Sean? I noticed that every time I see the OIG post something, it seems like every other one is DME. Because the amount of fraud that takes place in that sector of healthcare is, is outpacing any other aspect of healthcare fraud. The reason why is in DME, you're not required to be a clinician. You're not required to, you know, have documentation in the in the thought, you know, in in the manner for which you would normally see a provider have documentation to substantiate, you know, the medical necessity of a service. Um, <laughs> Eric Rubenstein, he and I are working on a case right now for durable medical equipment. And the situation is very simple. A Cuban immigrant came here to the United States illegally, set up a uh, DME company. They received their uh, enumeration, meaning they got their billing number pretty quickly. It took them like 30 days, 45 days. They got it. Within six months, they had billed $10 million to the Medicare program, of which they were paid $5 million. Of the $5 million that they were paid, what they did was they went out to Dr. Google and they typed in orthopedists in the state of Florida, NPI numbers, because our government does a really crappy job of protecting this type of critical information. So if you go out and you type in Sean M. Weiss, MD, orthopedist. It's going to pull up my address, my um, satellite locations, my first date of uh, approval into the program. It's going to pull up my PTAN. It's going to pull up my NPI number. It's going to give you every, my tax ID number. It's going to give you everything you need. And these individuals targeted uh, a group of orthopedists in the state of Florida and they started submitting claims to Medicare on random patients 
And sure enough, in six months out of 10 million that was billed, they were paid just over $5 million. And when the, when this individual realized, and he was in Hialeah, Florida, which is Miami, um, when he realized that the game was over, um, to throw the government off, he booked a ticket out of Miami International Airport down to somewhere in the Caribbean where he could then catch a ride back to Cuba where, because again, we have no extradition laws between the U.S. and uh, Cuba, um, he he was going to get away. So the OIG got notification that this individual was flying out of Miami International on this flight at this time on this date. And about three or four hours prior to his departure out of Miami, he already had a private jet booked out of Fort Lauderdale Executive Airport, and he did not allow them to file their flight plan until his departure time out of Miami. And as a result, they went and they thought they were going to nab this guy at Miami International Airport. Gosh. All the while, he was flying out of Fort Lauderdale Executive Airport on a uh, Challenger, uh, which is a, about a $35 million jet that he chartered uh, back to um, Cuba uh, with wow. $5 million uh, of U.S. taxpayer money. So that's the reason why <clears throat> DME, excuse me, is such a high priority. Uh, the ease with um, getting paid on this stuff is so much easier than getting paid even for an evaluation and management service sometimes. It's crazy. So wow. the government's really going after this. But I'm fascinated to get your your take on DME and specific types of DME as to why we would have to consider refund versus non-refund. So the DME that I've been um, exposed to, and by the way, let's give a, disclose, a disclaimer here. Sean is not an MD. He was making a statement, <laughs> is, is, for example. Well, <laughs> so, I do stay in a lot of Holiday Inn Expresses. Today. You do, I, or I mean, you play one on I TV. Do. Yes, I'm aware of that. I do, yes. No, <laughs> I am just not a make physician. Sure there's, no, there's no Sean Weiss MD that we're aware of that, that belongs to this Sean Weiss. No, but, not to this guy. No, not no, no, to no. this guy, yeah. No. But DME for me has been, I have a couple of podiatry clients, and I had one of my clients come to me and he's like, I have, I'm getting requests from our local Medicare carrier and it was Ohio. And he's like, and I'm a little concerned. And I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, uh, we have some patients and we dispense diabetic shoes. And I'm like, okay. And he said, can you look at some of the records and, and to look at the uh, request for refund? And I'm like, sure. So I'm looking at the records and they were pretty, they were okay. I mean, they were basically level four E&M services, whatever. And it had information that the patient did in fact have diabetes and the patient was being um, managed by their primary care doctor and was referred over to the physician. The problem was, is that there was no referral statement or certifying statement from the referring doctor, the one who's actually managing that patient's condition that they needed diabetic shoes and that they uh, and all the information that goes with that and part of the social security act and medical necessity under section 1861 s12 42 usc 1395 don't you guys get sick of that <laughs> but you're probably sitting there going okay let's write that down you might have to re-listen to this episode but it actually gives you a step-by-step on what you have to do and it says you can have those shoes, but for a referral for individuals with diabetes, physician who is managing has to document the diabetes, has to certify that the individual is under a comprehensive care plan related to that diabetic condition, and it goes on and on. And basically, the particular type of shoes are prescribed by a podiatrist or other qualified physician as established by the HHS secretary. And it just goes on. It even gives a statement of what the certification needs to say. And I found that in half those patients, they didn't have that certification. It was not in the record. And so I questioned and queried the physician. I said, "Where? where's the statement? My new front desk staff, she forgot to get it. She put in the order for it when they got referred over, but we never got a copy of it. And I said, okay, can you get a copy of it now where it just wasn't in the record? So they went over to 
and inquired with the primary care doctor and they said, well, we can, we can write it up now. I'm like, they can't write it up now, not for something you already billed for and got paid for. I'm asking if it was in the chart and you just didn't get a copy of it. You can't, after the fact, ask for something just to, to protect yourself from an inquiry refund. I said, you're going to have to refund that. And I was I always get amused. I'm sure you get this question. Well, how can I get around that? You can't. <laughs> Please don't ask us that question. We're not here to get you around something. We're here to protect you, to make sure that if you have to refund, you have to refund. Or if it can just be corrective action and education, and then let's from this point on do this, that's what we'll let you know. But so far, this is our third example of if that happens, you would have to refund because you did not follow directions basically and the letter of the law yeah you know and and i'm sorry to say this but do you know the the largest sector of dme issues that i wind up having to get involved in are actually tied to podiatrists me too me too and that's why i was asking you i was like well and i've seen something about uh is it syringes that seem to also get a weird wrap on that too, like just, you know, too many of them or ordering them yeah. for the wrong reason. I think those two. Well, remember yeah. back in the day, Sean, when you and I first started doing this, you and I both been in business over 25 years, me over 30 oh, years. Yeah. Remember when DME, when you dispense from your office, you were actually able to mark up, what was it, 30% and get that? Medicare doesn't allow that anymore. They let you oh, get yeah. what the, um, the wholesale, what you paid for it. And yeah, shipping. there's an anti-markup. Yeah, yeah, there's an anti-markup rule, and it's, they now base things on average wholesale price. An AWP. average wholesale price, and so you're not making much money off this. It's not worth it. Yeah, I, you know, I, I tell people all the time, you know, if, if if there's an ability for you to write the patient a script and let them go get that filled somewhere else, go ahead and do. Me that. too. Get it I off. mean, exactly. The the, the the risk reward just is not there. It's not there. This. It's not there. Well, and it also puts, you know, the, it puts it on the patient to get their referral. And you better believe any kind yeah. of pharmacy that has that. Pharmacies are are much more uh, in tune with regulation because they're okay. looked at like monthly. So. Oh yeah. Well, pharmacy. Forget about what's going on in in the pharmacy world right now. Yeah. The number of providers that are receiving notification if they're a prescriber of an opioid. Oh, I know. Um, from Walmart or CVS notifying them that they are uh, they've either been terminated from prescribing um, through the Walmart system or CVS is putting them on to a temporary suspension pending a uh, um, a discovery phone call to understand I, I'm getting <clears throat> I'm getting dragged into stuff that you know five years ago had you told me I'd be working on this kind of stuff I would have been like no way I mean, the amount of laboratory stuff that I'm getting pulled into now, the the amount of pharmacy stuff I'm getting pulled into with the PBMs and prescribing, and it's just, it's unbelievable to me what's going on. But here's another one for you, Terry, um, that um, we need to talk about refund or no refund. And this one's kind of a very interesting area for me. Addendums, but not just addendums, incorrect addendums. Yeah. and and when. When Sean and I talk about incorrect addendums, we are also mentioning when they're placed in the record. And this is a key because let's let's just talk about what those are for a second. So there's something called late entries, addendums, and corrections to a medical record. Now, it, there's an expectation, actually Noridian puts it right on their uh, website, that this is something that does happen in clinical services. Obviously, something wasn't available at the beginning or you didn't have that information, so you want to add it to, again, give substantive information in the record. But a late entry, an addendum or a correction, is has to have the current date and has to be signed by the person making the addition or the change. And it can't be ancillary staff. Remember, it has to be the person that originally was uh, put into that, originally uh, dictated that note. Now, a late entry says a late entry supplies additional information that was omitted from the original entry. And again, has the current date and is added as soon as you have it. Okay. And it's only by the person that has total recall of what wasn't in that information. 
And then an addendum, that's something that wasn't available at the time of the original entry and also has to have that additional information signed by the person making the addendum and added by the person again in the medical record. This is usually about a diagnostic that wasn't available yet because you didn't have the results to go over with the patient and it's problem pertinent. Now, a correction is different. Now, when we used to have paper charts, we would have to draw a single line through the information and then make sure that we signed an initial at the top. And then we don't, we never delete. You never, ever delete. And then you put a little note stating why there was a correction and then put the correct information. It's a little difficult when it's electronic records now. So now they say you have to make sure that the current date, time, reason for the change is in there. And you have, you do it at the bottom of the note. But you, again, you do not, you do not delete anything and you have to also make clear why there was a specific change made. Here's where we're running into, should I refund or not? Well, corrections amended prior to claim submission, you don't have to worry about a refund because that's what's legal. Prior to claim submission or medical review is considered valid. You can add that in, and, and but you, you have to be careful with doing it routinely. I have some doctors that every single note, and I know why he did it, he puts in their addendum at the bottom. And I'm like, I had to go back to that physician and say, there's no shared visits anymore in the office for Medicare patients. You having your mid-level provider provide all this information, and then you putting an addendum at the bottom of the note, that's not helping you. That's actually hurting you. And so... That was the problem. But here's where the refund comes into play. If you deliberately falsify a medical record because you got a note saying you're going to have to refund and all of a sudden you look at it and you're like, oh, shoot, I didn't add this information or I didn't do that. That's considered a felony and it's a, it's viewed seriously. And they're talking about creation of new records when records are requested, backdating, postdating, predating entries writing over or adding to existing documentation that is not under the late entry addendum or corrections. So you have to be very, very careful on this because if it's already been billed, they go back to the original record that's reviewed. And if you're lacking information and they want a refund, guess what? You got to send it. That's why it's so important sometimes, especially, and this is what I recommend, and I have clients who do that. They hire us actually to look at every level five before it leaves the, leaves the office. It cannot go anywhere until I've approved it. And so basically until, and I'll say, no, this is a level four. No, this is a certain level. Um, and then that way it doesn't go out with incorrect uh, level of service. But <laughs> this has been a, yeah. a huge issue. I had, a, I had a case right before COVID hit. Um, and we actually, we turned the case down, um, where it started off with, Hey, you know, our client, it came to me from a law firm. Um, our client was unjustly targeted by, um, Medicare and, you know, we've sent them all of this documentation and, you know, Medicare still determining that it's not medically necessary, this and that. And, you know, obviously, you know, I said, sure, let's let's go ahead and take a look. Can you send me the correspondence between you and Medicare and any other agency that's involved, whether it's a you pick for an investigation or the RAC or whoever it is. And what the attorney had left out was that not only were the services not medically necessary. They were able to determine that all of the notes that were created were created in the system on a date other than when the patient was seen and several of them were created like a week after the request for additional medical records was made by the mac which meant that no records existed prior to and the client was trying to say to me no you're wrong we had documentation in the system you know, you know, I just had to go back and I had to finish my record. And I'm like, what do you mean you had to finish your record? Dude, you saw the patient three years ago. You can't go into your system three years later and create documentation because you got an audit request and try to fill in the gaps so that you could support a level of service. 
That's a great example of falsification of medical records. You know, you just brought up something that I thought was interesting. Brianna Santoli, the the healthcare attorney you and I talked to quite a bit. Oh, yeah. um, She was commenting on something on a recent um, podcast that her and I were on in a recent webinar for NSCHBC. She was saying that now the EMRs and EHRs are being now having to come in to some of the um, arbitrations and legal discussions because of exactly what you just said. And they're like, yeah, but we just sell, we're just a vendor. We just sell them a product. But if there's any way that anything can be altered without a, a something in place to not allow that, is there there is some kind of a vendor responsibility or liability there, Sean, a little bit? There Maybe. should be. I mean, I'd have to go and look, but I mean, you know, you would think that I'm not you know, saying passing the, the buck. I'm just saying Yeah, maybe. I mean, you would think like in the in the in the service, you know, the service provider agreement, you know, that there's got to be some kind of disclaimer in there or some kind of, you know, one-way indemnification for the EMR vendor that says you're using this system at your discretion. We provide you with a template. It is up to you to make adjustments to that template to fit the practice right. you know, that you engage in. Um, you know, you, you know, check with your payers to ensure the turnaround time for completion of documentation, for dating your medical records, et cetera, et cetera. Um, failure to comply with state or federal laws is, you know, your responsibility and you could, you know, whatever it is. So I, 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 I have to believe that the, um, the vendors, uh, you know, that are uh, selling this EMR uh, system to a provider, their attorneys are, are looking at these, you know, indemnifications and disclaimers to be able to cover the assets of the organization, you know, the EMR companies. I, I would right. have to believe that. Um, Do they bear some level of responsibility? Probably. I mean, you find the right attorney, a a great litigator can make an argument on anything. So, I mean, I'm 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 sure. So Sean and I, I have given you, yeah, I don't know yeah. if it's, I don't know if it's for sure. I think it's maybe, but Sean and I have given you, so four important topics that basically are situations where you would have to refund. There's, it's actually not a gray area. But let's talk about where those gray areas are as we're wrapping this this subject up. And a couple of those are are tough. You know, if you've got, let's say you have an internal auditing plan for your EM services and your internal auditors are saying that your level fives are actually, you know, auditing a level three or four. Or let's say you're a derm or an internal medicine or primary care office that's um, taking off skin lesions, and you're also trying to bill office visits with minor procedures on the same date with a 25 modifier, and you know that's on the OIG work plan, and sometimes you're saying it's not supported, but the doctor's saying it is. Or one that just came up recently for me, a nurse visit being billed for an INR testing or a pro-time visit to an office when there's actually a code that is specific to INR testing, anti-coag testing when you come in. So there's no published rules, but you know it's not, for lack of a better way to put it, it's not best practices, or it's there's a definite um, professional opinion gray area on the level. So let's talk about that real quick. What yep. do you do? Do you do you immediately? Let's say I'm I'm rec- uh, reviewing a level five visit that was already built, and it's clearly a level three. Well, is that my professional opinion, or is that? you know, somewhere stated that absolutely this is 100% a level three. Well, in speaking to one of my providers this morning and going over level five, we had actually, and this was a a, a, um, urologist, we actually had to talk through what is considered an undiagnosed new problem with an uncertain prognosis or an acute uncomplicated illness versus an illness that has a severe exacerbation. And it was interesting because the physician and I didn't necessarily agree on what was the level five versus a four versus a three. But after, you know, a a decent amount of time, there was a discussion that, you know, it's not so much our opinion as it's the AMA rules that are putting it out with examples. And so when we say that, what, what do you think about that, Sean? Do you, would you, would you have somebody refund or would you at that point say, okay, we've identified that, 
you're overcoating and it really appears that it's a little bit, you know, it's been, I guess not a little bit blatant. This doesn't really make sense, but it, it's really blatant from a three to a five is terrible. And, yeah. um, you know, we're identifying this, we're educating, like I did this morning with my, with one of my clients. And this is what is, is better supported. And a doctor always says, well, then how can I get to a level five? No, don't ask me that question. Don't ask me that question. This is what a level three, this is what a level four, and this is what a level five is when I when I train on these EM services. And when you have a patient that fits into those scenarios, those categories, that's a level five. I'm not going to tell you how to pad to up your code. Oh my gosh. But what would you do in that point? Would you say, okay, you're going to have to send money back if it was already billed? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, so under under ACA, under the 60-day rule, for me, if it, you know, the rule is crystal clear. Um, within 60 days of identification and confirmation of an overpayment, you have a duty to refund. And and, and that's the absolute language in, um, in the statute. Okay. Um, or but what if it's just an opinion? What if it, what if I, what if I audit it and I say it's a three and that doctor can find another consultant that audits and audits it and says it's a five. See, this is where there's gray area. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's a, that's a great question, right? Because sometimes I, I know some providers that, well, EM services are highly subjective, right? They but are. I know are. some providers that will go from expert to expert until they get somebody to give them the answer that they want. I know. Um, it, look, you know, there's risk in everything, in every decision that you make. And making the wrong decision could be extremely painful. Um, if if you're using somebody who has a national reputation, right? So for me, I look at somebody like Terry and, and I think to myself, you know, if Terry tells me that these fives are not supported, it's like Stephanie Allard internally at doctor's management, right? If Stephanie Allard or Scott Kraft or Paul Spencer, you know, say, Sean, a five is absolutely not supported. A three is supported. Here are the reasons why. Like anything after 2021, they, they failed to document time. They didn't give us specifically what was involved in supporting the time. You know, the medical decision-making is, you know, one chronic stable problem with no changes to medication management, you know, could even be a two, whatever it is, right? I look at people like that, including yourself, Terry, and I say, if somebody with a national reputation who's been doing this for two plus decades, three decades, whatever it is, tells me that this is not substantiated, then it's not substantiated. And my recommendation to the client is you got to figure out the delta, right? The deltas between what you build and what you were paid versus what you should have been paid had you selected the right level of service based on what the documentation supports. and. Once I give that to the client, unless the client has retained me or, you know, legal counsel to uh, handle that voluntary refund or SDP in the event that it could potentially rise to the level of, you know, a, a, a uh, allegation of fraud, um, you know, it, 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 once, once we give that to the client, it's their responsibility to make the refund. If the client says, yeah, 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 Sean, you know, Sean's one of these, you know, crazy guys and, you know, we'll, we'll take an under advisement. I've done my job. I, I can't force somebody to write a check, right? Um, but what I will tell you is if things go sideways and somebody compels me to uh, testify, gotta tell the truth. I'm under oath. I'm not going to commit perjury for anybody. Right. What I do on some of these gray areas, and I think we could probably wrap it up with that. Yeah. And E&M is definitely a gray area. If I see a blatant, and this is kind of a rule I follow, if I see a two level difference, so a five to a three, I'm like, you're going to need to make some kind of an adjustment back to the payer. Yeah. This is just not good. 
if I see four or five or three to four, we do the corrective action plan. I'm like, okay, here's what we're seeing. We're seeing a pattern. Now it's, we've identified it. We're now going to educate on what is appropriate. And now we're going to put in a corrective action plan on what happens if this, ha if this happens again. The biggest thing is compliance. And you being the compliance yeah. guy, you have to have a corrective action plan and what happens if this pattern continues. And that's the biggest thing for the listeners. Don't let it go. If you, you make sure that you've educated, that you have something in writing, we call it the white paper, on yep. what happens if this uh, behavior continues. And that's the only way that you're going to be able to support yourself. So let's say that we do it that way and the payer comes back and asks for a refund on one of those level fives that should have been a four. You can say, we did identify that, but again, because ENM is subjective, we educated and we did this and we have not seen that happen again. You're you, that goes a long way with the payer. So yeah, it does. And, and, and any, anytime you're going to do now, keep in mind a, a, a voluntary refund versus a reopening or a refiling of a claim. Those are completely different. With a voluntary refund, you have to have that corrective action plan in place, and they will require that with CMS if you're doing a voluntary refund of tens of thousands of dollars, whatever it may be. If you are doing a reopening of a claim, it has to be with one, within one year to do a corrected claim. You, you know, Create the corrective action plan, to Terry's point, but we're doing a corrected claim. Uh, I agree with you, Terry. I am more. I am more willing, unless it's a systemic problem, and we have, you know, thousands and thousands of overcodes by one level. Typically, a three to a four or a two to a three. I I, I want to put that corrective action in place, and I'm not overly concerned with that one level. But if it's a three to a five or a two to a four, yeah, that two level or greater. Absolutely. There's there's no ifs, ands, or buts. My recommendation is you got to make a refund on that Delta. You do. Yeah, I agree yeah. with that. Yeah. Okay. All right, man. This was a great this was a great discussion as always. I'm 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 loving this. And by the looks of our um our listeners, uh, I think they are as well because our numbers and I'll share these with uh, you a little bit later, Terry. Our numbers have just been skyrocketing on the number of downloads that we're getting on um, the compliance guy and the uh, hashtag Terry Tuesday segments that we're doing as well. So uh, thank you to you for bringing such great content each and every single week to this program. And thank you to each and every single one of our listeners and viewers for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with Terry and I for a little while each week. We greatly appreciate you. And as always, remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. Until next week, take care.